This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And what's really important is that we band together, we speak with one voice. You know, I'm like, you sure? Because I've got two kids, I don't want it to ruin your hunt. You're like, yeah, yeah, just coming home with me. Just take your time. Like I said, it would have killed a normal man, but I'm not normal, but, you know. When you said, why do you want to talk about that? To me, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, there's so many different factors that go into this decision. Enjoy it for what it is. Every moment of it. If, if, if you're only going to shoot one duck. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hey, Foul Front, it's Hannah from Oak Barn Beef. We're giving away a box of steaks, jerky, and more premium beef exclusively for the listeners of the Foul Front. To sign up, head over to foulfront.com and click on the Oak Barn Beef Giveaway tab to enter into this giveaway. Thanks, and we can't wait for you to try our Nebraska-raised and dry-aged premium beef. All right. Hey there, Foul Front. Long time no listen. Hope everybody's apocalypse is going just fine. I hope you're all staying inside. Or uh, those of you that can't, uh, that are forced to go to work right now, thank you for continuing to do that. Sorry it's been so long. I'm happy to announce, though, that I have an awesome episode today with Dave Wilms. Dave, how's your apocalypse going? You know, it's uh, it's not too bad. Uh, quarantined myself, playing with the kids, lots of family time, uh, getting outdoors a lot. So I have no major complaints. All right. Now, before I truly introduce you here, I just have one question. You know, I'm going to ask a couple questions. One specifically is, which one is worse? the Your COVID-19 experience or having to tie yourself off to a tree during a flash flood? Uh, totally tying myself off to a tree during a flash flood. That would, yeah, that would be hands down worse for me personally. Might not be as bad for other people. I know people are going through a lot worse than I am right now with COVID-19. Uh, but yeah, uh, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you want me to tell you a little more detail about that. No, we're just going to leave it there. Perfect. That's good. Cliffhanger for next exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> all right, guys, that's all we've got time for. I'll see you later. No, I'm just kidding. So you seem to be a man of many stories. And this one is one of the more entertaining ones out of, we talked a little bit. I asked you for some cliff notes, but yes, I, I do want to hear this story. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, so early in my career, I actually worked as a field biologist and I had to change this story a little bit because I used to say I worked as a field biologist to pay my way through law school. But then I heard from a bunch of biologists, they're like, you know, ask me, where did you get that job They made where you made enough money uh, that you could pay for law school, right? Uh, so I say now, I worked as a field biologist to help offset some of the costs of books and, to, and, and minor things for law school. But anyway, so in my early 20s, I worked as a field biologist, and I was working out in uh, this area called the Thunder Basin National Grassland uh, in northeast Wyoming. And it was summer and, you know, I was living in a tent next to a one-room schoolhouse. And if you take out a map of this area, um, there's, a, there's a dot in the middle of the map called Dull Center, like D-U-L-L Center. Dull, Dull Center. It's literally a point on the map called Dull Center. And that's where I lived. And for, the, for a while, I thought it was aptly named until, you know, I spent some time working out there and it was anything but dull, right? There, I just have so many stories and crazy experiences from my time working out there. But one of them was this particular one. So I'd been living in a tent, like I said, for, you know, weeks at a time, months at a time. And this was in the early 2000s, right in the middle of a big drought. And we were getting just crazy hot temperatures and no rain. And it was hitting triple digits every single day for 10 or 11 straight days. And we just, you know, we being myself and, uh, couple of the other people, field workers that I was out there with, we just couldn't take the heat anymore. We just needed some relief. And so we decided to move our camp for a night. Uh, a few miles north of where we were staying, there was, there's a river. Uh, and I use that term loosely. Uh, it was the Cheyenne River. And the Cheyenne River in the summer is more like a stagnant um, wide spot in a, you know, in a depression, like you can jump across it in most places The it's not much of a river, but it has water in it year round. So they call it a river, but it does have a pretty wide floodplain with a lot of cottonwoods growing out of it. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to set up camp in these cottonwoods by the river and just, you know, get some shade, get out of this heat, uh, just try and, you know, get rid of the oppressive heat a little bit. So we get it all set up and get comfortable. And you know, I mentioned how it had been a total drought. Well, a couple miles upriver, there'd been a big cloud burst. And it's, I, I, I tell people, if you've seen any of those shows on the Discovery Channel that talk, that where, you, where you see, you know, they're in Africa and you see this total dry area and then all of a sudden water just appears, that's what this was like. There'd been this cloudburst upstream, several inches of rain dumped within, you know, a matter of under an hour. And all of that water had to go someplace. It wasn't soaking in, it had to go someplace. It went into the channel, the Cheyenne River. And that river went from being able to step across to overflowing its banks to us thinking, we probably better pack up and get out of here. And starting to pack up and get out of there and not being able to get everything packed up in time 
and get out of there. And we wound up with just kind of this wall of water uh, that really engulfed us. And so we had to tie ourselves off to trees uh, to keep ourselves from being swept away by this water as it was, you know, this torrent as it was coming through. And, you know, it's not like we were camped right on the shore of the river. We were, you know, hundred yards away, something like that. Maybe not quite that far, but it, not like we were set up right on the riverbank. And so I what just remember you, being- what you used to, What'd you use to tie uh, yourself off with? Oh, just um, uh, paracord. Yeah. 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 Just stuff that we had. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. It, it wasn't great. Um, and so you get on the downwater side, right? Cause you don't, cause there's all kinds of debris coming through. At one point we actually watched a, a cow float by, um, it actually, it was a dead calf, um, already dead, uh, float by, um, all kinds of debris and stuff. So we just had to wait it out and, you know, it, it didn't take long for the water to recede and we were able to get out of there. It was a lesson learned for us. We were probably pretty stupid to try and stick around, you know, earlier, you're in your early twenties, you feel like you're invincible. You're like, ah, we can, we can ride this thing out. And we, and then we think, ah, we better gather our gear. And then we think, well, we can gather all our gear. And then all of a sudden you're just kind of in it and, it doesn't take a lot of inches of water to, you know, whip you away. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how long, I guess, would you say, you know, you said it was a relatively short amount of time, but how long was it? Uh, it, it felt like four days. It was probably, you know, less than an hour. Um, okay. But long, long enough that you're, you know, you're in pretty good panic mode. Right? Yeah, you, sure. You know, and, and I'm not... I don't want people to think that, you know, this water's up to my neck, you know, or anything like that. I mean, we're talking about water that's maybe waist high at best, but it's coming through so hard that you, there's, you can't walk out of it. You just got to, what did you, what did you personally tie to? Cottonwood tree. Cottonwood? Cottonwood tree. Did you choose it for its specific species or was it just the nearest thing that uh, you could find? That's all, it was either, there, that's all that that's all that grows there cottonwoods and grass <laughs> that's it yeah for so, sure yeah all right now without describing um, what it is that you do to make money and not mentioning hunting or fishing who's David Wilms well that's a short uh, that's a short conversation if I can't talk about hunting or fishing or what I do yeah <laughs> 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 Um, you know, so Dave Wilms is a, is a policy wonk, like an outdoor, you know, wildlife, public lands, you name it, policy wonk. It doesn't matter what I do for a career. That's just where my interests lie. Right. So yeah, that's me. Family man. I got three little kids that I, you know, can't imagine having, uh, doing anything without them that I loop into everything I do all the time. Right. Um, yeah, and and the other thing I always tell people is, I'm I'm a Wyomingite. Like I'm Wyoming through and through. Um, spent good portion of my life here. Uh, guess we haven't mentioned that yet. I live in Wyoming, and uh, and I'm just a I'm just a Wyoming guy that likes to do things that Wyoming guys like to do. Uh, so I don't know what I don't know what more you want than that because you take you take my uh, my passions for hunting and fishing away, and you take my job away, and peel those layers back and that that's kind of who I am. So peel that back and there's not a lot left. Well, good. We'll get after that with the rest of the podcast, I, I suppose. Yeah. Now I've got it on, uh, I've got it on good record that you have given meat eaters own, um, Steven Ronella some shit in the past. Uh, is that correct? 
Yeah. I mean, quite literally. Right. Um, so, so I, yeah, I've known him for several years, actually. Uh, um, I, so I, I used to work for, uh, the former governor of the state of Wyoming. And when I was a uh, policy advisor for him, uh, it was early in, uh, in Steve's foray into podcasting. Uh, we, we got the governor on, uh, an episode of the meat eater podcast and, and, I joined him with on that. And then I did a separate one uh, and helped him with a, a sage grouse hunt and did a podcast with him then. And so we built a relationship. And um, when I started my own podcast with a couple of friends a couple of years ago, and we asked Steve if he would be our first guest. And he agreed. And we got in a plane to fly up to Seattle, where he lived at the time, to, uh, to meet him at his house and record this podcast. And uh, because I, I didn't know about this technology thing where you could actually record podcasts without being in the same yeah. room as somebody. Yeah. yeah right. So, uh, <laughs> live and learn. Right. Um, but there's one thing I knew about him. Uh, he had this affinity, um, for, you know, basically, you know, he liked to burn crap, like literal feces of animals, for, uh, and actually, I take that back. He didn't like to burn it. He liked to collect it. Let me rephrase that. He liked to collect it. Um, I, on the other hand, liked to burn it um, for the smell. And there's one thing when I worked up in the grassland uh, that I was telling you about, there was one guy that uh, an old an old Korean fighter pilot, war fighter pilot that lived up there. And I went to his place for dinner and, and this was actually pretty recently, not when I was working up there, but I got to know him there and I continued to go back and I went back up to his place probably three, four years ago. Uh, took my daughter there. We went to Turkey hunt on, on his ranch and his wife, you know, makes this unbelievable dinner. You know, and the way I describe it is like a 16 course meal of 16 different types of meats. Like they are a meat and potato family. And that is my kind of, it was my kind of meal. And we all sit around the table and Bob, the, the uh, rancher there, the old pilot says, hang on a second. We can't start just yet. And he walks into the kitchen and he opens the drawer and he pulls out a Ziploc baggie and he takes this thing out of the baggie and puts it in on a plate and brings it over the table. I'm like, I'm looking at it. Bob, is that sage grouse crap? And uh, he says, yeah. I said, well, why is it on the dinner table? He says, well, watch this. And he lights it on fire and lets it burn for about 10 seconds, then blows it out. And it proceeds to work like incense for about the next 15, 20 minutes, that one dropping. And so I became a huge fan of it. I go out to Lex sites in the spring. And so I start collecting this. And, and then I find this out about Steve, that he's really into it, uh, into collecting. And I knew he didn't actually have sage grouse crap in his collection. So, you know, I packed up a bunch and, and, uh, took it up there, uh, to Seattle with us and, and yeah, gave him, gave him some of that and we burned it while we recorded. What does, what does sage grouse crap smell like? Um, sage burning sage. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, that's basically it just burning sage. So if you like very the smell anti, of that's sage, a very anticlimactic answer, right? It, it is, except it's a very definite 
smell that you can put to something as opposed to like anytime you light a bag of dog dew and throw it on a neighbor's porch. That's a very different smell that is not welcoming in any home. You know, I, sage grouse. It smells you know, I, like horse hooves. Yeah. 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 Sage grouse, you know, it's, it smells delightful. It's like a. How'd you meet, how'd you meet this man that uh, turned you on to burning sage grouse? <laughs> yeah. So that, that was actually, um, I worked when I was up there working in the Thunder Basin in the, on the grassland. I was doing small mammal research and uh, I was doing it both on national forest, but also on private lands. And he happened to be one of the private landowners that I did work for up there. And I, I, you know, it was just, so he, yeah, he was a very, he's a, he's a fun guy to be around. He's just, he just has a lot of fun gregarious. Um, he, he was a pilot in Vietnam and Korea. Now he's about 90. Uh, but back then, this is about 20 years ago. He still had his pilot's license and he had a, I wish I could tell you the type of plane it was. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. He's, you know, it was a single prop, um, two seater, uh, you know, yellow, plane Cessna Cessna of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that he had, and he just, it was a hobby plane. He used it to, uh, frequently to just check on his cattle cause his ranch was gigantic. So it was, you know, how I'd use it to keep on, keep track. But the other thing he'd do with it is he liked to practice some of his old, uh, fighter pilot maneuvers. So we'd be out there working, doing some field work. And all of a sudden this guy would come in hot at about, you know, 10 feet off the ground. At least that's what it felt like. And he'd just sneak up and just buzz us, you know, and scare the crap out of us. Uh, just, he'd just have a good time with us. And then he'd, he'd swing by the, because we were, like I said, we were staying in this one room schoolhouse or outside of it anyway, this old, old schoolhouse out there. And he'd drive by sometimes and, and comment on the work would we he, were doing. Would he cut the engine to sneak up on yeah. you and, and then blare it up yep. as, right as you, yeah. You, yeah, you got it. You got it. And, uh, pilots, are, pilots are jerks. They, uh, yeah. Are you a pilot? <laughs> I'm not a pilot, but, but you know, uh, a few. I was on the, yeah, I know, I know a couple. I was on the, the observation side of uh, the, the pilot work. So, yeah. Um, but. So I got to know him there. Um, and then, you know, really got to know him because he, when we worked out there, I told you about how hot and, and everything would get. And there was one, one time in particular, he invited myself and my coworkers. He said, why don't you come over for a dip in our pool? Uh, cool yourselves off. Uh, and so, of course, we're, we're all in our early twenties and have an invitation to go swim in a pool in a hundred degree weather. Absolutely. Let's do this. Uh, so we head over there and, and, uh, he and his wife, they meet us at the door and bring us in. And, uh, and you can see there's pic the pictures on the wall of the house from 40, 50 years ago. And the pool is in all these pictures. It's been around for decades and that crystal clear water. And it just looks so inviting. And we uh, go into the kitchen before we go to the pool and they serve us ice cream. And we just have a lot of great conversation, you know, just, um, you know, just, you know, table dinner table style conversation that you have with landowners, ranchers, you know, as, as hunters. Right. Um, so we did that and then he said, all right, uh, so we're having this and Bob goes, okay, I'm going to go out and fill up the pool. We thought, first of all, that's a little odd that the pool is not already full. Uh, he says, got to go fill it up. I said, well, if it's a garden hose, we're going to be here for days. Uh, and you know, Gene, his wife keeps, keeps us company and keeps talking with us. And, and as it turns out, so we, we open the door, uh, when he finally calls us out to swim, we open the door and we step outside and, this pool, it, I mean, here's, it's just black. 
It's just black, the water. And as it turns out, I told you about the Cheyenne River, right? And how it's this kind of stagnant water, especially in summer. Well, he pumps from the Cheyenne River into a stock pond. He has a water right to do that. And the stock pond is right behind his house. And then he pumps from the stock pond, he pumps to fill the pool. So we're getting, yeah. we're, <laughs> he fills the pool with this water that's, that's, you know, been sitting out in a hundred plus degree weather with all his livestock bathing and, you know, doing everything else in it. Right. Uh, and he's pumping that into the pool and, and, you know, we're all standing there, the, my coworkers and I, there's six of us, I think, or maybe five that went and we're standing there. We all look at each other. Like, should we, this doesn't seem safe. And then we give each other a look and look at him and they, he just looks so happy to have us there. And we just did the like one, two, three cannonball, you know, and just went after it. Um, sure. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. So I'm that's sure you swam in worse. I don't know if I have. It, it oh. was really disgusting. Never mind it was really disgusting. But yeah, so that's how I got to know Bob. All right. You're the senior director for Western Wildlife at the National Wildlife Federation. Yes. Do you think that any young people out there are saying, man, I want to be the senior director for the Western Wildlife at the National Wildlife Federation when they grow up? Um, I don't know. Um, I yeah. don't know. Um, I can tell you that it, none of what I just told you, these stories of working in the field are applicable to what I do today as the senior director of Western wildlife. I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a field worker. So if that's what you're looking to get into, maybe you want my first job, but I can tell you this job pays a lot better than that first job. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. That, you know, I ask you like, you know, um, there's probably, there's not any kids out there that are saying that, but, um, you know, let's start with what, why your position exists what do you you know what is it what do you do um yeah that's a great question so i you know big picture i work on wildlife and public lands policy uh across largely across the west but there there's some issues that have a more national scope so i'm i'm working in you know with governor's offices and state wildlife agencies and um, non-government organization partners uh, in the in the hunting community in the broader conservation community in the agriculture community in oil and gas i mean you name it working with all these partners uh to advance uh wildlife conservation priorities to basically to make sure that we still have um, vibrant wildlife across the country to be able to enjoy whether you hunt or not um, and to be able to, to ensure that we have these great open spaces and public lands um, uh, for all of us that like to recreate and enjoy public lands. So I, I work very heavily on the policy side. I also, I'm a lawyer by trade. I spent, um, spent more, uh, well, I spent about eight years as a, uh, as a senior assistant attorney general for the state of Wyoming. I also worked in private practice. Uh, and so I do some legal work as well for us. Um, and then I do some work on, um, on the business development side, like are there are there ways that you know projects that we can do that help generate revenue, creative uh, creative things that we can do there. So, yeah, that's yeah, it, what's interesting is the job, and this is what I like about the National Wildlife Federation and other organizations too. This job, it, it wasn't like there was a posting for the job and I applied for it. This the job itself didn't exist. The um, when I was working for the governor. 
um, I was recruited to bring my skill set to help out the organization. And I think sure. that's really exciting. You know, when an organization is is thinking about the you know, what are the right people to help us move our uh, our uh, our interests and ideas forward, and let's let's just get the right people instead of that you know that whole analogy, the square peg round hole deal. Um, you know, th- that's not this. It's finding the right people for for the organization and figuring out how to create something that fits to the person well too. Uh, so it's, it's a, I feel pretty blessed to have the opportunity. I know back to your original question, I know there are a lot of people out there uh, that would give an arm and a leg to work in the, in the conservation world in some way there. And so I, I know how fortunate I am to have this opportunity uh, to do it for a living. Uh, and I don't want to take that for granted. You said you have, you have three kids, right? I do. Yeah. What, what ages are they? I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old daughter, both of them daughters, and then a 2-year-old son. So what does your 8-year-old think that you do? Oh, she doesn't have Summarized. A clue. She doesn't have a clue. <laughs> she, does, she, she doesn't have a clue. <laughs> she, you're just dad. She know, yeah, dad. I'm dad. She knows I work with wildlife, um, it, but aside from that, she doesn't know. Uh, and what, what does your 11-year-old think? What does your 11-year-old think you do? Um, she also knows I work with wildlife. She also knows I'm a lawyer. And, and then once Pat, once you get past that, I don't know if she truly understands what I do. Sure. And your two year old thinks that you exist to give him milk and cookies and wipe his butt. Right. And, you know, piggyback rides and, you know, chasing around the house and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You've got a two year old, you know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. All right. So, uh, you know, coming back off that, what did you, what did you think that you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, how far off the mark did you land? Um, that's a good one. Uh, I've been all over the place. I actually didn't settle on this. Um, well, I should, I should take that back. I knew I wanted to be involved in something related to the outdoors, from about the time I was 13, when I took my first, I took a, a five day long horse pack trip into the Wind River Range of Wyoming, a, a fishing trip with my dad. It was my first time doing anything besides like car camping, like when you're yeah. you know, truly getting after it in the back country. Um, and I was, I think I was 13 at the time. And it was that experience coming back from that certainly changed me in a way um, that I knew I probably was going to work in something in the outdoors uh, or music. Like I was, a, I, was really big, I was really big into music growing up and through high school and had scholarships um, for in, in college to, to go down a music performance path. Um, but when I got to college, I, I, I wound up you know, treating music more as a hobby. And I really got into more of these outdoor areas, but I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and it wasn't until, oh, it, it was probably halfway through my sophomore year. And, and actually, I took a road trip um, to New Orleans after my freshman year of college uh, with a buddy of mine to visit a friend that was going to school down there. And it was on that drive, it, just based on the conversations we were having, my buddy looked at me and said, why in the world are you, and, and he's saying, majoring in whatever I was majoring in at the time, I don't know, I changed my major like four times in a year and a half. He's like, you, your passion is clearly in wildlife, that's what you should be doing. And I got back and, and started looking into it, thinking about it, thinking, you know, 
you're right. Uh, he was right. And so I changed my major, my soft halfway through my sophomore year to wildlife management. So I got an undergraduate degree in wildlife management. Um, and it wasn't until my senior year actually that I decided, you know, what I really want to do. And it was from some sort of mentors from faculty that I had there, um, that I, I knew I wanted this wildlife exposure, but I knew I wanted a little bit more than that too. I really got fascinated in the policy side. So I actually added on another major in environment natural resource policy. And that's when I decided I was going to go to law school. And I wanted to go to law school to do natural resource policy, um, not really law. Of course, I then I went to law school and I graduated and I'm like, ah, I better take the bar, you know, then I passed the bar. I'm like, well, I better see what this practicing a lawyer thing is like. And then I did that for, you know, a decade uh, before I finally was able to pivot and really get heavy into the policy side. But I wouldn't change having that legal experience. I think the legal experience and the scientific background meshed together uh, gave me kind of the perfect recipe for being able to pivot and do, and do this policy work that I do now. There are people um, that are asking themselves – and a, a, a tiny part of myself as well. You keep saying policy. What, is, what, is, what does that mean? Oh, man, the sky's the limit. So um, it, it can be absolutely anything. I'll give you a couple of examples, right? Uh, so it can be anything from, policy means anything from you know, working with a state wildlife agency on setting their hunting regulations, right? That's policy, right? To working with a governor's office on putting in place, um, uh, you know, directives on, on migration corridors, um, that's policy up to the federal level of, okay, what are we going to do, um, both on the legislative side and on the executive side. So on the executive side, it's okay. Working with the federal agencies that are doing rulemaking and they're trying to put in place, uh, policies around endangered species or land management uses. Okay. You might be working on how do you affect that kind of policy, or it might be what a lot of people think of at the, at the executive level or the, sorry, the legislative level where you're actually going in and working with legislators and trying to, to enact new policies, new statutes or laws through the legislative process. So it's everything that you can think of uh, is policy. So day in, day out, what is it that you think is like the most important part of your job? Um, that's a, so that's a great, the, the single most in my, and I, this is big picture, right? This is absolute big picture, uh, because I'm not going to talk about any one policy. Um, but the single most important part of my job is being correct. And what I mean by being correct is, you know, what, what matters more than anything in being an effective advocate or effectively working in policy is when you're going to talk to somebody and you're providing them information that you want them to rely on, that it, that, that information isn't hyperbole, that it, that information is rooted in something you know, and it's either based in law or science, uh, but, it, uh, but it's based in something true. And, and my reputation is at stake for being able to provide correct information. So that I think the single most important part of my job is doing the legwork, the research, you know, reading every scientific article I can, reading every law journal I can, court opinion I can, everything that I can read um, to pull the research together to be able to make an effective case for why we need a policy. Because 
everything that I'm going to use to back up that argument has to be correct. And I have to know what the counter argument to that is going to be. So I, I not only have to look at, okay, what, what's, what's going to make my case, but what's going to make my opponent's case. And I have to be able to know what those are and be able to respond to those articulately and, and appropriately without using a lot of hyperbole and rhetoric. So maybe that that's not, is, that might not be what you expected, but that's, no, that's that was good. That was uh, being correct. I, I really liked what you said about being correct. You know, we live in a, a day and age where information isn't just information, right? Um, it's a weapon. You know, information is a weapon that is politicized by a lot of things. And then really digging down to the core of whether or not you're left, right. What does this mean? What does this thing mean? That, that, that has some importance. And, uh, I, I, w- I would like your take on what I'm about to say um, politically. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, as hunters and fishers, f- excuse fishers, <laughs> anglers, <laughs> anglers, fishermen, fishermen women, fisherwomen, yeah. whatever, whatever you want to call yourself, you outdoors people. Uh, it's we never like really, truly ever have a candidate, do we? Um, no. Because what we do isn't political; it's apolitical, right? I mean, it it, sure. it is, and and so what I do every day isn't it's not political. I have to talk to politicians, but it's not political. Like what I want is the same thing that my dad wanted, which is the same thing that my granddad wanted, which is to be able to take their kid out to the place that they went as a kid to hunt and fish, and know that there are going to be a lot of animals there to hunt and a lot of fish to catch. Right. I mean, and so when we're looking at policy, we're looking at, okay, what policy, what policies do we need to do that to make sure that we still have that? I mean, I mean, that's really, really simplifying it. Right. But what are the issues affecting our land, water and wildlife uh, that that we need to be aware of so that I can provide the same opportunities to my kids that my grandfather provided to my dad? Uh, in, a, in, in, in 50, 60 years, all I want is more wild places and more wild people and wild things in those places, um, right? And I, I just look, and when I'm looking, when I'm watching CNN or when I'm watching whatever, whatever, choose your whatever it is that you're going to be watching, it's hard, to, it's hard to read that, right? So it's like you don't know where you're you don't know like what's best for that decision-making process because we have a bunch of different lenses that we have to look through. Right. Right. Oh, you're and exactly. so how, how, how do you get your information? How, how can you help us, you know, as you know, some maybe people that are not as versed um, in policy or, you know, politics or biology or science, how do we make the right decisions as, as you know, outdoors people and wild people. You know what? If you can crack that nut, <laughs> um, you can. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. Can I put a plug in for my own podcast right here? Well, that was <laughs> you ruined it. You ruined it. Oh, that's what gonna, you're gonna do. That was the segue. Oh that was the man, segue. I was gonna say. Oh, I've, go ahead. You know what? I'm starting to get notorious for ruining segues and transitions. So I'm pretty proud yeah. of myself at this point. I, uh, I've been listening. Hold on. Stop. I'm going to do right. this for you. Perfect. Right. 
I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I produce a couple podcasts. And one of my favorite podcasts is the Your Mountain Podcast. And I didn't uh, even know about this podcast until you and I uh, met in a, you know, dimly lit speakeasy on the eve of COVID-19 uh, while attending the League of Extraordinary Podcasters. And um, that's not a thing in case anybody oh, knows. It's but COVID. we did. It's, it's absolutely a thing, but you're not supposed to talk about the thing. You just ruined the thing. It's I was, not a thing. I, See, I played I'm, it off. I can't do that either. I'm t- I just, I can't take social cues. <laughs> no, uh, we were in, we really were in a speakeasy. In, yeah, we were. In, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, eating some, I would say, subpar wings. Yeah, I actually brought a burger in from the neighboring restaurant. Yeah, so you ate the yeah. subpar wings. I was having a burger. Uh, I think I was drinking an NA beer too. I think yeah. like there was a lot of things that were going wrong that night. Yeah, I I agree with you. First of all, we shouldn't have been in that. I mean, it, it literally felt like a speakeasy out of the nineteen twenties. Uh, I don't know whose idea that was. Um, I'm see. I'm not going to take that one. I'm not going to uh, because I do, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, name names or throw people under the bus. Uh, but it, it, I, it was a questionable choice at best. Um, but it, that did, person it, it did lead us. Know. Yeah, yeah. But it did lead us to having a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't remember exactly how we both uh, found out we were podcasters. Um, but I did learn like something very important about you within like the first like couple seconds that I knew you because of uh, your friend um, as well. In that you you don't share waterfowl hunting permissions or leases <laughs> and you take those very seriously and so you know i i initially thought i was like ah oh, here's a guy you know i can get behind uh, the fact that maybe he keeps a couple spots uh, a little tight on lock but even the co-host of your own podcast you don't invite out to your your goose lease is what i've heard oh look so i invited him out once uh, and he came out and we killed a bunch of geese and it was a, we had a great time, but I, so there's a code and maybe we speak a different language on the code. Uh, I don't know where you are on this code, but I have a code that if you get an invitation, the surest way to not get a future invitation is to talk about that inv- about needing another, a future invitation. Like if you keep bringing up the fact that you haven't been invited back over and over and over again, it becomes far less likely that you're going to be invited back. Sure, sure. I my code or my language on that is is that okay, I invite you out. You don't get invited out until I get invited out on a great hunt. You know what I mean? We that, trade. You you got to trade. It's a reciprocal thing. I, I and I appreciate that, but I also recognize cuz I've 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 used my goose pit as an opportunity to get people into hunting that haven't hunted before. So I have no expectation that they're going to bring me out on a hunt. And then somebody like my co-host there, uh, Nephi, um, I've seen his success rate on hunts. So I have no expectation that he's going to invite me out on a hunt uh, because I want to, I like to be successful uh, <laughs> or at least have an opportunity for success. So you know, I don't, I don't begrudge him for, for that. I've had other people I've brought out that certainly have invited me, you know, like you describe it, have given reciprocal uh, offers. Um, yeah. But part of it I now is all just, the new, I turn all the new hunters that I make, I turn them into great scouters. I say, okay, I showed you this spot. You can hunt here, like whenever you feel. But the thing is, is now you gotta go. You gotta go find an, 
a spot to hunt. And here's some tools to use that. And then they're like, usually when they find it, they, they call me. So it's a little selfish, but. Uh, you got to do what you got to do. Sometimes access and, and opportunities are hard to come by. And that's, I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the big limiting factors for all of us as hunters is, is uh, opportunity, right? Yeah. Okay. Your Mountain Podcast. That's what it's called. That's you. You're the host of Your Mountain Podcast. Um, it's yourself, Nephi, and yeah. and we what have, else do you guys do? Yeah, so we have one other co-host with us. His name's Mike uh, McGrady, and so Nephi Cole, myself, Mike McGrady. We all. So it's the Your Mountain Podcast. It's it's about it's really a policy based podcast for hunters and anglers and people that love the great outdoors. Um, we started this about two years ago uh, when we were all, all three of us were working for the governor uh, of Wyoming at the time. We all have backgrounds in law or science or policy. You know, Mike and I are both lawyers by trade. I've worked as a biologist. Nephi worked as a soil scientist for 12 or 14 years. Right? So we all have this collective knowledge and have worked in the policy field. And we were listening to to a bunch of podcasts and there are a lot of entertaining podcasts out there. First of all, I'm not suggesting ours is necessarily the most entertaining. Um, right. But I'm going to say that it is, I have to say that it is, but, but what we did is we, it's all right. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's good. It's good. What we did is we, we noticed there seemed to be a, a, a gap in the outdoor space. There were a lot of great hunting podcasts. Like if you wanted to, you know, tips and tactics, if you wanted to learn how to hunt anything, you could find a podcast to, to learn how to hunt anything. You know, if you wanted to, to talk about, you know, you just sort of dip your toe in the water to policy, you could even find some podcasts where they dip the toe in the water. And there, there's some fantastic podcasts out there. But the one piece that seemed to be missing is something that pieced it all together. It was something that said, okay, why do we have the ability to hunt? and fish? And what are the threats to that heritage from a policy standpoint? And what do hunters and anglers need to be aware of that's going on out there to erode that heritage? And so we decided to start this podcast that would be able to teach people about, okay, where are all of your dollars going? How are your dollars being spent to fund conservation, right? What laws are out there that limit your ability to hunt or fish? What are different states doing, um, with regulations? What are different organizations out there doing that are posing threats to hunters and anglers? Uh, we even did, we even have talked about, okay, what's, you heard the concept of green decoy. What, what is that? And is that really just a construct of somebody else trying to break us down from within? Answer, yes. Um, but so we just wanted to take on all of these. Let me you know, pull you over there for one second. Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's the biggest green decoy we've known? So, so that's, that's the fiction that I'd like to end this, this idea of calling anybody a green decoy, right? The concept of green decoy was actually created, that word, that terminology was actually created by a high powered lobbyist in DC that works for the oil and gas industries that was trying to, to, to figure out a way to pit different hunting groups against each other. This idea of breaking us down from within, that was the idea. It was to make some hunters think other hunters weren't, you know, as. Okay. Sorry. I didn't yeah. want you to give all your trade secrets away, but I <laughs> wanted people to know. I wanted people to know. Uh, here's my take. And I used to do the podcast reviews and I'm going to be bringing those back. 
um, and you guys will be on my regular listen um, cycle. And awesome. people really like those. I think that your guys' podcast, and this is uh, this is my own personal statement. I think your guys' podcast is one of the most important podcasts that you can listen to as a hunter, an angler, an outdoors person, a wild person, as I like to call uh, those people. Um, you know, we all listen to Meat Eater. We all listen to this and that and that. But you guys are actually talking policy, things that can be manipulated, things that can be changed, things that require our attention. And for a lot of us, we're just, I mean, no offense to myself, I'm a simple dude. Um, and I try to talk on the planes of, of, you know, what you guys are talking about, but I just, I'm not, not as smart as you guys. Now that's not true. You just I'm not don't, as, you haven't worked in the profession for 15 yeah, years a piece. Right, right. Right. You're right. I'm not as versed. I'm not as, um, every day. I don't deal with it every single day. And it is something that is like super important. When I hear you guys talk about things, it's very, um, my eyes light up a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more attentive. I pay attention to things that I should have been paying attention and you guys are doing something extremely useful. Um, I would maybe, maybe this is wrong. I would say you guys are bipartisan and you are the watchdog essentially for like hunters and conservationists and anglers to be like, yo, you need to reevaluate how you're thinking about politics. Well, I, so I, first of all, I, I really appreciate that. Um, we, instead of calling us bipartisan, we like to call ourselves nonpartisan. Uh, although some of our, sometimes we can't help it. A little partisanship slips in here and there. We're all human. Um, yeah. But I you know, really appreciate you saying all that because uh, that's, that's why we do it. We, so the, the whole idea was we looked at ourselves and said, we have a collective, you know, uh, among the three of us, we have something like 45 years of experience combined working on these issues, working, uh, you know, in working with state agencies, working for governors, working for NGOs, um, working in the private sector. We've kind of covered all of those bases and, you know, we just wanted to provide the benefit of our experience and understanding to try and break some of these complicated issues down into things that everybody can understand that doesn't work with it on a day-to-day basis. And hopefully let people recognize that, you know, as we say at the beginning of our podcast, we say there are decisions every day affecting your land, water, and wildlife, and you need to know about them. You should know about them. And that's, that's right. And there are, there are decisions made every day all across the country that have that can have not just some impact but profound impacts on hunters and anglers and um, the ability to hunt and fish in the future and people need to know about that so that's what we try and do uh, i've got a uh, you know a fairly successful podcast way more successful without... than ours no no way more successful than ours so <laughs> not if i have anything it. to say about it hey, not if i have anything to say that. about it uh, but what i'm saying uh, you know usually you know um, when people tell me, oh, I got a podcast, usually I feel like a little like, oh, you, you do like, um, and that's, I'm not saying that for any reason. Cause I know there there's podcasts that are much larger than mine. Um, and I just know how much hard work and dedication I've put into it. And, uh, <laughs> when you started explaining your podcast to me, when we were in that little speakeasy there in Omaha, 
I like, I don't know if you saw it, but Mike, I know that my eyes were like, yes, that's exactly the podcast that I want because I'm almost there. I just want to know a little bit more about what decisions are being made on my behalf by the people that I'm voting for. Yeah. And you should. And, and, you know, anything we can do, you can steal our stuff. We don't care. We just want to get the word out. You know, if you, you know, we've, we've never been in this to make money as most podcasters know, um, you don't get into this to make money. Uh, you get in this to spend money, (laughs) to lose money. No, we, we got in this legitimate messages to spread messages that we felt weren't getting out there. I mean, that was our sole purpose and we don't care who grabs those messages and uses them. Like if people want to take it, I mean, our whole point is to get information out there. If people want to grab the information that we're putting out there and use it for their own purposes in other ways, do it. I hereby grant you that permission, right? It's, it's like, we, we just want, you know, look, less than, less than 5% of Americans hunt. We are an, an ultra small minority of the population, which means to be effective advocates, we all have to be on the same page and, and speak in the same language. And we've got to be loud and we have to be, we have to have the right information. And that gets back to what I was saying about, you got to have the facts, right? You've got to have the right information. And so that's one thing we pride ourselves on is we, we do a lot of homework and, and a lot of prep for each of our episodes to try and get that information out there. Cause at the end of the day, we want that, that small segment that, you know, less than 5% of the population that hunts to be able to be an effective advocate so that we can maintain the 75% or 75 to 80% support that we have from the general population for hunting for food. Right. right? I've often said that, um, you know, hunting is a bell curve. The people on the left um, of the bell curve, you have a very small amount of people that hunt and then you, you move over and then on the right side, you get the people that oppose and left and right is not political in, in this sense. Right. But, you know, you've got the the 15% or the 5% on either end of that bell curve that truly care about hunting and one way versus the other way. And I've always said that it doesn't, the enemy is not that other 5%. It's the apathetic 85% or the, the apathetic 90% that don't care. They don't care about public lands. They don't care about conservation. They don't care about hunting or access or anything they don't care anything about it they've never even been exposed to it those are the people that's where the most opportunity is yeah and and i use opportunity in that sense as i don't look at it as opportunity to recruit i know we talk about r3 a lot in our community about recruiting and retaining and reactivating hunters right I don't necessarily view that 75 percent 80 percent whatever number we want to talk about as um as targets for recruiting into hunting, the important part of them, of that percentage, is that they don't become opponents to hunting. That they either remain apathetic or move into our camp and actually say, yeah, there's there's some value to hunting and we want to we want to start, you know, talking some of those those bullet points. Yeah. We don't I need don't them personally in- hunt myself, but Jim right. down the street. He likes to hunt elk and he gives me a couple elk roasts every now and then. And those are great. And that's yeah. a great way to, uh, yeah, we don't need that's everybody in the, we don't need everybody in the field with us. We just can't be creating new enemies. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. I, I'm torn now in the in the conversation in the in the conversationalist portion of me. It's like, ah, do I do go down some stories or do I ask you? So I think I'm gonna break this up a little bit. All right. So bear with me here. I'm following your lead. You take me where you want to go. Policy. We're gonna talk about the good, the bad, and then the ugly. Okay. Just your quick little blurbs on it, but here's what we're gonna do. All right. Talking about the good, right? Before mm-hmm. we get into that, I want to know what the subtle differences are between being charged by a bear and being charged by a moose are. The differences, not the likenesses. Yeah. Yeah. So the bear stopped. <laughs> for for me, that was one of the big differences. Uh, the, sure. bear, the bear stopped. The, the moose kept after it um, and, until he pushed me out of where he wanted me to be. And frankly, the moose is just way freaking bigger. Um, anyway, I, yeah, I got, I did, I got, I got bluff charged by a black bear. Um, Oh, I don't even remember how many years ago. It's been 15 years, 16 years ago. Um, got bluff charged by a black bear guy, got unintentionally got in between she and her cubs. Right. Uh, and I saw the cubs before I saw her, then I saw her and she, you know, did the whole, you know, she gave you the business. She gave me the business, but it, you know, I, and I was by myself. Um, but I, you know, she stopped short. She, I saw her when she's about 30 yards away. She gave a good, she gave a charge. She stopped probably 10 yards away, just came to a dead stop and let me slowly back out of there, uh, until she could get over to her cubs. And once it was no longer viewed as a threat to her cubs, she just let me be. Um, the difference there, like I knew in my, in, even in my soul, I knew that, that, um, that once I got away from the cubs, I was probably going to be just fine. With this moose, this is the funny part. I actually, I was hunting moose. I had a moose tag I was, and I was, I was archery hunting moose. So I was, I, I was armed. Turn the tables on you. Turn, right, right. It was a small, you know, it was a young bull, and I had just decided, I, you know, this this tag was. I, look, I'm not a I'm not a trophy hunter by any means. I am a if it's brown, it's down is my typical motto. But with this moose, I took a slightly different approach. It was a it was a bull tag in the most desirable unit in the state, and I probably won't ever be able to draw that license again. And I decided I was going to hold out for a while and see if I could find myself a pretty nice size bull. I think most people can appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah. And and this bull wasn't um, what I was looking for. Uh, it was pretty early in the archery season. Um, and I just, I must've gotten a little bit too close, made him uncomfortable. He started racking his antlers on some, um, on some shrubs that he was munching on. Uh, and then he started racking his antlers on a pine tree that was right next to him. And then he came after me and I was diving behind, uh, you know, jolting around trees and diving behind trees. And he made a couple of turns and he just kind of kept up coming after me. And at, w- at one point I got myself behind a rock and he had stopped. I thought I may, I may have to draw back on this. I may have to burn my tag just to save my life here. <laughs> uh, and ultimately decided I'd like, I'm going to wait as long as possible. Just going to wait as long as possible. I don't want to burn that tag. Um, and I, I started to back away from him a little bit, keep an eye contact. He kept kind of walking towards me. I tried, always tried to keep a tree or a rock outcropping, whatever I could find between me and him. 
And this, this dance probably went on for 10 minutes after he did the, the charging, uh, just as he was walking me back. Uh, and finally, and I don't know what caused it. I just, I don't know enough about, about moose physiology or anything to know why or psychology, I suppose. But at some point I got out of there far enough, backed out far enough that he just stopped and we stared at each other for a little bit. And then I backed up a little bit farther and then he turned and he walked right back down to where he originally started, where I first saw him and went right back to grazing. Like at night, nothing had ever happened. Yeah. He was like, yeah. And here, yeah. And here I was. altered your life. And you're telling stories about that, but I'm not. Here, here I am having to go back and change my pants and all that kind of stuff because I, you know. <laughs> but uh, well, good, yeah. All right, yeah. to so accompany that, since that was a good ending, um, you know what? What's the good of policy right now? Um, so there are a few good things, um, and I, let me ask you first: where do you want to? Where do you want me to touch? Because you want me to touch state, federal. Yeah. What do you want me to do here? I'm asking, I'm leaning on you. Just for me to, just for me to take it. What's important. You you tell me what's important. Yeah. So at the federal level, we're at, we've talked on our, on my own podcast for the past couple of years about how very little gets done in Congress that, that has any measurable impact on hunters and anglers. It just doesn't happen very often. Uh, and that's changing a little bit and has been within the past year or so. The, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, for those that aren't familiar with this, the Land and Water Conservation Fund was established in the 1960s through an act of Congress. And it, it's, it, um, created a fund for up of up to $900 million to be used on things, anything from parks and, uh, swimming pools and ball fields to, to land acquisition and trails and, uh, easements and, and creating, opening up access. Right. And that act, that law sunset a couple years ago and Congress last year, permanently reauthorized that act. That was a big deal. So now instead of every five years, Congress having to come in and reauthorize that, that law, that, that law was, is permanent. It's there right until Congress says it no longer is. But the, but then there was this question about funding because even though there were $900 million set us or uh, it was authorized, sorry, the act authorized up to $900 million to be spent out of this account that was created only twice in the history of the law. Did that account fill up to the $900 million threshold? You know, typically it's about half of that that's authorized, sometimes even less that Congress actually appropriates uh, to be used for these projects. And so what was kind of fascinating and we did a podcast on this is that sometimes politics you know, politics matter you know what's happening at the time politically matters for some of these really big legacy items like finding a permanent funding source for LWCF and what happened earlier this year now this coronavirus is impacting it for sure but what happened just a matter of weeks ago is you have you know, Republicans want to keep control of the Senate, right? They want to get back control of the House. They want to keep the White House. We're in a, this election cycle, you know, and it, and people are willing to do a lot to keep power. And in this instance, 
you have a Senate where you can already look at the numbers and say, it's pretty likely that the Republican is going to lose in Arizona, McSally, that it's pretty likely that Cory Gardner, the senator from Colorado, is probably going to lose to um, John Hickenlooper, former governor. What you wound up with is a situation where in Montana, of all places, in the state of Montana, Governor Bullock, the, the Democrat governor in Montana, made an announcement that he's going to run for the Senate, for the U.S. Senate. And at that time, Senator Daines in Montana goes to the president and says, this is going to be a contested election. This is going to be, this one's going to be hard. And I'm going to need something from you. I'm going to need help. And the thing I'm going to need is I need LWCF permanently funded. Like, I need that to be a priority of the White House. And when it becomes a priority of the White House, then it becomes a priority of Congress. And so he made that ask along with Cory Gardner, whom I've already said is facing an uphill battle. But the fact that Senator Daines was there, then President Trump sends out a tweet saying, you know, if you pass this, fully fund it. If you pass this, I'm going to sign this bill. And all of a sudden we had a bill introduced, you know, about a week later in Congress with 59 co-sponsors. You only need 60 votes in, in the Senate yeah. to, to pass this. And you had 59 co-sponsors. Uh, so it was on the path to passing and having permanent funding. And then we have coronavirus happen. Uh, and it's grinds, grinds the Senate and the House, all of Congress to a halt. And they're focused, and as they rightfully should be, on um, stimulus packages and addressing this. But my point is, that's the good. Like There's this opportunity, once in a generation so kind of opportunity. Okay. Explain it. And I think you did a good job here. You probably explain that at the collegiate level. Like maybe that was <laughs> yeah, a little maybe. bit lower. Explain sure. it to your eight-year-old daughter. Yeah. So my eight-year-old daughter likes to swim in a local pool in the summer. That pool is partially paid for by money from the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Right? That pool wouldn't exist but for the money coming from the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That Our pools... How are pools related to um, marshes that I'm hunting ducks in? So they're not technically related, but they obviously are a an outdoor activity. So the the like I said, the money that's set aside for this program can be used to enhance outdoor recreation opportunities, whether it's in communities by building soccer fields or baseball fields. Or for for improving, uh, acquiring land to improve wetlands, or acquiring uh, access uh, and easement to access you know lands that you couldn't access before. Without that money, and that money has to be matched by the state. There's you know there are restrictions on how it can be used, but without that money, there are so many projects and so many opportunities as hunters that we that we have in this country that yeah. wouldn't exist. Those those programs. Land and water conservation fund money has been used in, you know, what I, what I'd say is, you know, if say there's a lake that you like to fish at, so you, you like to, and your kids like to go fishing there, right? And there's a, a dirt road you have to drive on to get to that lake and it goes through a ranch that dirt road does, but you can, you can drive that road because 
the land and water conservation money from the land and water conservation fund bought the an easement bought access basically bought permission for everybody the public to be able to drive on that road to get to that lake to fish and if we didn't have that money nobody would be able to get to that lake to fish without going and knocking on the door of the landowner and getting individual permission which may or may not happen Um, those are that's just one example of literally thousands of examples around the country that that money has gone into almost every county in every state in the United States uh, to to improve the outdoor recreation opportunities for for citizens around the country. And we have an opportunity now, and I, I say once in a generation because it it literally is. You just don't see this sort of thing um, pass Congress. Um, we have a, a once in a generation opportunity here to see permanent funding, a permanent funding source. That, that, and for people that are worried about taxation too, it's a permanent funding source that's not coming from the individual taxpayer. So the way it's set up is it's a permanent funding source that comes from uh, royalties from offshore oil and gas development. So this is a way of saying, okay, if we're going to develop in some places, we should protect other places or provide places, opportunity sure. in other places. And we're going to use some of that money to do it. So it's, it's sort of moving those dollars uh, around. All right. Enough with the good. Let's get back to some doom and gloom. Sure. There's plenty of that to go around. You were yeah. struck by lightning once. Yeah. So technically, technically the, the connection never went a hundred percent through like, ah, it, I must, I'm much less interested now. So it's, it's like as close as you can possibly come to being struck by lightning without actually having the bolt run through your entire body. Um, so like third base lightning strike. Like third base lightning strike. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Pre- so um, it, yeah, I was fishing on a, on a lake and I, it was one of those days, you know, have you ever had, uh, you've probably had this. Have you ever had a moment where something happens and it's just so ominous that you start questioning whether you should really still be there? Yeah. It makes your gut turn and you go, I'm effing out. Yeah. But, but mine was like two hours before this happened. Yeah. It's just one of those weird moments where I'm, I'm, we're on a, on a a big body water, million acre foot reservoir, uh, doing trout fishing and out in the middle of this reservoir is a rattlesnake swimming across the water. And we got up close to it and that snake coiled up and started striking at the boat and, and, and in the water, that's in the water. Yeah. That's, no, it's crazy. For I've anybody that's pit- not a herpetologist or a herp, herp, herpetology enthusiast, yeah. that's not Guy that common study snakes. Yeah. Uh, y- you wouldn't think, but it turns out I, snakes swim, uh, rattlesnakes swim pretty frequently and especially like that. Yeah, so that makes think about that next time you get in the water. Yeah, uh, I don't like that. They just inflate, and they. I mean, this one swam across open open water that was more than a mile wide, uh, no problems at all. First time uh, I caught a gar, the first time I caught a gar, I reevaluated whether or not I uh, wanted my daughter to be swimming anymore. Yeah, uh, this was before I had kids, but but I don't let my kids swim in this water. Because uh, I've seen, I've seen it happen. That was the first time I'd seen it happen there. I've subsequently seen it happen probably half a dozen times, maybe more. You, you've seen, you've seen a rattlesnake swimming in the water a half a dozen times. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. Clearly. Um, clearly, there's an inequity between yours and I's uh, <laughs> water experience. Go ahead. All right. Back. Um, back to the lightning strike. Yeah. So I, that was just my ominous moment of like seeing this rattlesnake on the water coiled up striking at the boat and i'd never seen that before and and i start thinking maybe maybe i shouldn't shouldn't be here maybe i should maybe go someplace else uh can, can i pull you over for yeah. one second yeah do it do you how long have you been married uh you shouldn't have asked that before i thought uh it'll be 15 year 15 years this summer so 14 years do you ever evaluate a situation like oh like you think to yourself, this is fine. And then you, uh, you put the lens on as, as a husband and like, oh, would my wife think this, this is like something I shouldn't be doing? You're like, ooh, okay, yeah. So I just put the, the lens on. My wife would be extremely upset if she knew that this happened. So now I know it's bad. Where he is like, if you weren't married, you'd be like, whoa, that was crazy. Yes. Yeah, so, have that. Um, so what you've just established is that you are a much better husband than I am. <laughs> uh, because I hope my wife listens. To <laughs> yeah. I hope mine doesn't because I, uh, yeah, that thought runs through my mind and then that actually becomes motivation for me to go and probably do the stupid thing I shouldn't do. Oh man. Uh, yeah. No, I, I just, I think to myself like, oh yeah, I'm going to cut across this little bay right here in my small kayak. And I'm like, It'll save me 20 minutes to get to my spot. I'm sure I'll be fine. And then I know if like, if the buddy that's with me, if he tells his wife that and my wife hears about it, like, oh, you were going through 60 foot water in your kayak that was probably a little overloaded. Um, yeah. Then like I'll I said, I, oh, hey, we're going to skirt that. We're going to, we're going to stick closer to the bank. We're not going to cut across this bay. What, what's clear to me is you, you two are going to make it as a couple. You're going to make it. Uh, I two, Three years ago, I think, uh, I called my wife on our, on, a, on our anniversary from the top of a 13,000-foot peak um, in a you know raging um, – actually, it was an early August rain-slash-snowstorm uh, at 13,000 feet uh, with you know 2,000 feet of vertical off of sheer cliffs off of both sides of me. So, um, I probably – that's like having a do-over – you know, if I were, if I did your thought process, it would have, my first instinct would have been to not do this trip over our anniversary. And then the second one would have mm. been to probably not do this climb that day. Um, I didn't do either of those things. I, well, I did both of those things. I should say I didn't uh, second guess myself. So for what that's worth, um, good. You're better than All I right. am. So you got struck by lightning. lightning. Yeah. So, Anyway, we went through the ominous piece, seeing this rattlesnake. Fast forward a couple of hours. It was, we're in early afternoon. And off in the distance, um, we're monitoring a thunderstorm. Because if if you're like me, you see a thunderstorm and you're, you, you're on the water, like, uh, how much time do we have to play with here before we really have to get serious about getting off the water? So we're monitoring this thing in the distance. Uh, we're counting flashes, and, you know, the, the distance between the flash and the crash. Um, and we feel like, we're pretty good. Uh, the rest of the sky looks pretty good. There's one little cloud above us. And it's always the little cloud you got to be aware of, apparently. Sure. Um, anyway, so... I didn't know that. We, I didn't either. I'm probably not true, but in this situation, it was. Um, 
so we're out there and buddy lands a fish and so we stop the boat we're trolling for fish at the time so he stops the boat to start reeling in and while he's sitting there while he's fighting this fish we hear we're in a it's in a small aluminum boat and it just starts to hum just a like this buzzing sound like what is that where's that coming from uh so we kill the engine thinking maybe it's the engine and still and then we're sitting there in total stillness i get the it's the water is glassy calm right except for the splashing of this fish in the back and i'm looking at my line and all of a sudden you know it, it goes from being taut to arcing up into the sky like it's being pulled out of the water upwards and creates this arc and it's probably 15 feet above the boat and we're watching it pull the line out of the water and pull the uh, the line up into the sky and we're all three looking at this and thinking what this is the most bizarre thing we've ever seen all while we're hearing this right and then and I'm so with a, a friend and I'm with my dad and my dad grabs his fishing pole and when he when he grabs his fishing pole, all of a sudden we start seeing sparks coming off of the line. And then I grab my fishing pole, and there's sparks coming off the line. And then my hand is starting to like I'm feeling like I'm being electrocuted. Right, like it's my hand is starting to burn. Um, and it was probably at that moment. It took that long while this and the humming is still going on, and we're seeing sparks now coming off of the edge of the boat. Like there's sparks all around the boat. And it's, it's at this moment where we all look at each other and we watch, we're watching that line go up into the sky towards this one little cloud above us. Like, um, I think this is- Hold the, on, I got to pull you over. Yeah. What kind, of, what kind of bait did you guys have on? I can't give that away. Okay. But it was a, it was a, it was a lure. Like it was a- Okay. Yeah. Uh, without giving too much away. Uh, it was a th- three inch long lure. You know, All right. It, Sorry. I don't know why I thought that was important. Double, double, double trouble hook, you know. Yeah, sure. You know, lure. Um, and, you know, so it has some weight to it, yet it's being pulled up out of the sky in totally so calm the, is the lure water. in the in the water? it's still in the yeah it's in the water okay so you've got but the, the line the line's like- being pu- the line's being pulled out of the water well and obviously when you're pulling the line it's creating drag on that uh lure yet it's still pulling it out you know pulling the line up out of the water and so i think we all looked at each other at the same time and said and thought you know this is where the positive and the, we're right at the point of where the positive and the negative uh, are about to meet and create this lightning you thought and my fishing line this, is you, the vector yeah no we, we we pretty much assessed this that my fishing line was the vector and at some point it was it was going to create the connection between that positive and negative charge and that lightning was going to come through us. So then, then, and this is all happens in seconds, right? It's like, well, okay, our, the boat is sparking. We're being electrocuted. Uh, I've got the, you know, it's, it's one of those foam, um, uh, yeah, yeah. foam handles on the, right on the grips on the yeah. fishing. And that foam was peeling off onto our hands. I mean, that's how much electricity there was. Um, and so you get the, it, you just get to the point where like, I guess, do we, grab the oars and try and paddle our way out of this? Um, do I try and reel in? Do we fire the, do we fire the engine back up and risk like a massive catastrophic explosion? And that's actually the choice we went for uh, was we thought we may have a second, we may have 10 seconds. We don't know what we have, but we know we have to get out of here fast. And so we, we cranked it up and, you know, you know, hit, 
hit it hit out of there as fast as we could and so the the connection never completed and so the official lightning strike never happened um it was close it was on the precipice we don't know if it was a second or 10 seconds or whether it would have happened at all but we do know that uh we were we were being electrocuted i've never seen sparks coming off of a fishing line before i've never had foam come off on my finger on my hand before i've never seen sparks or heard my whole boat hum i've never seen my fishing line just be lifted straight out of the sky or straight out of the water into the sky in totally calm conditions it was just one of the most bizarre experiences Okay, so what's the policy equivalent to that? What's the foam coming off in our hands? What's the line being dragged up? What are we looking at right now? What's the bad? What's the ugly? Something bad's about to happen. Yeah, so the the, the thing I tell people uh, the, the, to caution about is, as I said, not a not a lot happens at the federal level. You know, I said the good. We have this opportunity for something pretty uh, incredible to happen, a generational impact at the federal level. The place where the stuff happens that really impacts you as a hunter and angler, that's all done at the state, individual state level uh, for the most part. And one thing that I'm noticing that's actually having some effect in places are these ballot initiatives. Like, watch out for ballot initiatives. Um, there, there are a number of groups like the Humane Society, HSUS, um, that they that's what they do. They, they're organizers and they try and get into states and do ballot initiatives. They're, they're one of the reasons why you can't hunt mountain lions in California. That was done through ballot initiative, right? So you having wildlife management, remember how I said a while ago, less than 5% of the population hunts and how you and I, you and I talked about how there's a lot of apathy in the, in the middle. Well, it's those apathetic people that that's where the ballot initiatives come into play. It's those apathetic people that you can, you know, you can legislate by initiative. So it, it's, it's like the, um, oh, what's the, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to remember the, the terminology, but it's, you know, the, it, it's like the, oh, it'll come to me, something of the majority. Um, but it, it's like, you want to have pure democracy of one vote, one action, takes take management away from the wildlife agencies put it into the individual that doesn't know anything about the nuances of wildlife management and see what happens and what you're finding is we're seeing a lot of ballot initiatives that are starting to pass things like banning uh like the banning of mountain lion hunting in california uh you have a lot of a major effort across the country in a lot of different states to end uh trapping and to to stop wildlife uh hunting contests um, and, and, you know, of, of all kinds. And I know that that's a hot button issue, but I know us also that a lot of people, probably you and I, I, I'm, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, but uh, I participate in a waterfowl hunting contest every year uh, for, for geese and that the money raised from that goes into securing wetlands and, and, up, you know, and habitat for, um, for, right. for geese and ducks. And it's, it's, ballot initiatives like that that would end wildlife contests that would you know in, in a lot of cases it would dry up these uh, revenue streams uh, for organizations that are trying to do good conservation work on the ground so i think this this and you're seeing it in colorado with wolf reintroduction by ballot initiative right where you know there's people like the idea of seeing wolves around but they're taking away 
the the scientific decision making from the agency entrusted with making scientific decisions and having your your suburban and urban populations that you know, look less than 50% of Americans got outside last year less than 50% and those are the people that are now when the ballot issue comes up that are making these decisions that affect us as hunters and anglers and, and so when I talk about the, that's one of the big things I'd caution people of on the ugly side is watch out for these ballot initiatives um, because they're coming, they're not going to end and they're targeting states that are becoming more urbanized. And uh, yeah, the, it, it, so you're seeing a lot more efforts in, in states that maybe have these more urban populations that don't hunt nearly as much. Um, that's where a lot of the efforts are being focused to, to erode some of those um, opportunities that we have. All right. I think that, uh, you know, we talked about the good, we talked about the bad and I think honestly, the ugly will be, uh, that'll be part three of our conversation here. But, um, in the meantime, if you really want to, um, you know, get to know the policy and the decisions and a little bit of a, uh, I would say a layman's take or at least a layman's interpretation of what's going on, uh, go ahead and check out uh, Your Mountain Podcast. Um, David Wilms, he is the, uh, are you, would you call yourself the host, the co-host? I, w- I, w- I would call myself the host. Yeah, and my, my buddy's the co-hosts. Yes, yeah, I, I, sounds good. Um, so where, where can they find Your Mountain Podcast or where can they get more information from you? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity for the selfless plug here. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, you can find us on our website, which is um, itsyourmountain.com. Uh, that's ITS, yourmountain.com. Uh, honestly, the best place to get the most up to date information, though, would be through our social media channels. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, all of them at the handle at itsyourmountain. Uh, you can also email us anytime. We actually take a lot of, uh, a lot of the topics that we cover are from listener feedback, sending us suggestions. Uh, so if you have a suggestion for a topic that you want to learn more about, you want us to take a deep dive in, email us. Our email address is your mountain at it's your Uh, and then obviously we're, you know, we're out there to, to download and listen to, you know, every place you can find podcasts. Yep. And, uh, with any luck, that your guys' podcast will become much more popular than uh, the Foul Front Waterfowl podcast. And I just hope that I can be a positive conduit into that because I do think that it's super important that uh, people are listening to you you and Nephi and uh, Mike. And I think that you guys are not only just talking um, about the, the topics that are important, but you guys are pretty fun too. So. Hey, well, obviously really appreciate that. And, and I, you know, thank you for taking the time for inviting me on, uh, to be on here today. Really, really do appreciate that. Uh, no, we didn't talk a lot about, uh, waterfowl, uh, but that's because I'm not in your league and that wouldn't be a fair fight. Uh, so (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't know about that at all. And maybe that's part two. Maybe that's part yeah. two. And uh, what you'll find is, is I, I think that the, the listeners of the foul front will, definitely appreciate um and hopefully they all go over and press subscribe on yours because i think if they did we would be a lot better off as a community so well thank you very very much really appreciate that and appreciate the time with you 
All right, Dave Wilms, uh, the host of Your Mountain Podcast. And uh, you guys, go ahead, go give them a like and check them out. And any, what's, what's your sign off? Well, you know what? Can I ask you one question? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we always end our podcast by asking our guest this question. And I'm just kind of curious. Maybe your sure. your guest might be interested in knowing what your mountain is. We, we ask everybody, because we're talking about our show, is talking about things that impact, affect your land, water, and wildlife. We always want our guests to talk about what their mountain is. What's that place, metaphorically or physically, that's, that's so important to them, that drives them, uh, that, you know, that gives them solace or peace or, uh, is, you know, yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting a hundred yards right now from where I'm recording this. I'm at the Prairie Wood retreat, uh, and reserve. Um, I'm in a little cabin, um, called the Willow cabin, um, of my friends. They're the cats and Myers. They, they operate, it's in Manhattan, Kansas. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of places that are extremely special to me in the outdoors. Um, and I'm sitting a hundred yards south of one of those places. Literally, I was walking out, and I will go walk it again tonight. And it's a, it's a piece of it's a private ground. And what this private ground uh, represents to me is the opportunity that is locked to a lot of people. Um, if everybody that's a you know a hunter or an angler had this little piece of ground like I've got. I've got 300 acres. I, I reached out to the landowner and um, I said, hey man, I need a place that's close to home. I got a young daughter that was just born. I'm new to the area. Do you mind if I go bow hunt and fish on, on your property? And he's like, take care of the place and keep an eye on it. And it's, it's yours for the roaming. And the experiences and uh, the time that I've spent out there have been so important Especially, you know, I had a, you know, a zero day old daughter and uh, to be able to have a place that was just five minutes from my house, that would normally be just some dude's private land that he has cattle on that he doesn't let anybody hunt or fish on it. That is such a underutilized segment of land uh, in America. If, if everybody could just find that guy, that little piece of ground that you know, they kind of, they, they get respite. It's not public. Um, they get a little bit of respite from the, you know, having to wake up super, super early to go hunt and beat somebody out to a public spot. That, that's what this place is for me. And I just, it's just such an opportunity. If we all were just nice, I, I, I got, I buy this guy, you know, uh, meat and I, I, you know, send him, treats and things. I, I bet you I spend $200 a year on $300 a year on this guy, just keeping the, the relationship going and, and letting him know how much I appreciate his, his place. And that, that's my mountain. It's 300 acres in the Flint Hills of Kansas. And, uh, it's pretty much all mine. And I've taken multiple new hunters out there and it's beautiful. And I, the landowner doesn't know what it means to me. And well, um, hopefully he, he listens. Hopefully yeah, he, I know. Yeah, I, right now he knows. Yeah. And I try to tell him all the time. I, and I still think it's, it's a little bit lost on him. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of landowners that there's a lot of landowners that are not like that, or they, they understand what they have. But I, I feel like you go out, find your little spot. If you can't own it, 
you know, go find a place that somebody will let you be on there and, and uh, try to do your part to um, make it access for, for other people. That's awesome. See, that's, that's the kind of content, the kind of great content you get with your podcast, but now you'd get with my podcast too. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. All right. Your Mountain Podcast, anywhere you can uh, listen to this podcast, you can listen to Your Mountain Podcast. And uh, I really just, I would, if you're listening to this conversation right now, please uh, go be a listener of this podcast because it, it, it's important and it's doing, it's doing the right things. All right, Dave. All right. Thanks so much. Let's end this thing. Deal. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like. And we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right. Stay safe out there, and we will see you next week. could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.